Hello, I'm Ian Hartley. And I'm Warren Kay. Welcome to the Rediscovering God podcast. We invite you to join us as we endeavor to see him more clearly, love him more dearly, and follow him more nearly. Ian, you were telling me recently about a book that you had read that you were quite excited about. Yeah, I was visiting uh, a school friend, Smuts van Ryan, and he gave me the book titled The Blue Parakeet by Scott McKnight. It's a, it's a book about how to read the Bible and uh, uh, try, uh, how to try and discover what the writer had in mind. Mm, so it fits very well with what we've been doing here on the podcast. Yes, but what really intrigued me was the second half of the book was all about women. Oh, and in what way? Well, <laughs> you'd think we were sitting in a pub talking about women. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, it's all about women in, uh, in ministry, well, women in the Bible and how to relate to them. So, uh, of course, you're aware, I'm aware, that there are a few passages in the Bible which uh, seem to silence women in worship. And that has become a very um, important issue within the Seventh-day Adventist Church uh, in the recent past and is currently about not ordaining women. Yes, I, I don't want to talk about ordination. No. I'm too chicken. Well, but this, these passages are often used yes. as a reason why yeah. women shouldn't be ordained. Okay, so let's deal. There are three passages we can deal with. Okay. Um, the first one is in 1 Corinthians 14, 34 to 35. Why don't you read it? Warren? Okay. Women should be silent during the church meetings. It is not proper for them to speak. They should be submissive just as the law says. If they have any questions, they should ask their husbands at home, for it is improper for women to speak in church meetings. Well, that's pretty clear right there. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> um, 1 Corinthians twelve, thirteen, and 14 is all about spiritual gifts. Right. Um, so when you get to 14, the first part of the um, chapter talks about speaking in tongues, mm -hmm. but the emphasis is on the meetings being orderly. Right. So it's not about should you speak in tongues or not, but if you speak in tongues, it should be done in an orderly way. Mm -hmm. the, the chapter 14 actually ends by saying um, everything is done properly and in order. Mm -hmm. um, that's verse 40. So there was something about the woman speaking up in uh, meetings mm -hmm. that was causing disorder. Okay. Uh, and that seems to have been the problem here. It's not about silencing women, but about order. So what you're saying is this is, he's writing to a specific situation in Corinth, not making a blanket statement for all time. I think not. Uh, that will become clearer as we go along. Okay. So um, his, his big uh, burden is that women should be silent during church meetings. Some have suggested that uh, 
At this stage in history, men were far better educated than women, and so this ignorance that was imposed on the women caused a disruption when they asked questions that the men all knew the answer to. Mm -hmm. So that was a problem. So the advice was, learn before you speak. Mm. And it wasn't that the women weren't to be educated, because uh, he says to ask your husband when you get home. Mm -hmm. In other words, get informed right. about it, it, what we're talking it about. It wasn't that he felt that women were not intelligent. It was this was what was imposed upon them mm -hmm. that they uh, had to live with because of the society they were in. Yeah. There's another factor, and that is that there was a gender revolution going on in Rome at this time, much like the Me Too movement okay. uh, in our uh, day and age. And uh, we have some contemporaries of Paul mm -hmm. who described this revolution that was going on. And it's very interesting the comments they make. I've summarized them. Um, point number one is that uh, women aim to be immodest sexually provocative, and dress extravagantly. Point number two, uh, they would uh, snatch the podium, the lectern, any opportunity they got so that they could address the masses or the crowd mm. on whatever topic they chose to. Mm -hmm. um, thirdly, they despised marriage. Uh, that was for servants and slaves. They despised childbearing and child-rearing. It was so bad that Caesar Augustus, that was the first Caesar, mm -hmm. um, he passed laws against the behaviors of these uh, Nova Roman women, mm -hmm. uh, which is really interesting. It must have been very bad. Mm -hmm. So we, we've got that sort of societal milieu going on. So Paul is... We're always caught up in our cultures, you know. You can't be acultural. Right. Uh, so your culture determines the way you're going to speak, the words you're going to use, and the context in which you will use them. So Paul, at the same time that he's saying this, he recognizes in the same book of 1 Corinthians that women are involved in leading public worship. For instance, in chapter 11, verse 5, he says, But a woman dishonors her head if she prays or prophesies without a covering on her head, for this is the same as shaving her head. So prophesying and uh, praying, uh, when you have to dress in a specific manner, means that it's public. It's happening. It was already happening in churches. Yes. So he's not talking about how you prophesy and pray in private, right? because then how you dress is irrelevant. Mm -hmm. So this clearly indicates that women were actually taking part mm -hmm. in leading the worship right? Uh, in the very same book, just mm -hmm. three chapters earlier. Okay, so now we come to uh, 1 Timothy 2, uh, verse 12. Very forthright. I do not let women teach men or have authority over them, let them s listen si quietly. So this is written to Timothy. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the letter to Timothy. Timothy is the pastor in Ephesus. Yes. 
So this is important. I've been to Ephesus, mm -hmm. and they had this fantastic library there, so you could see the ruins of the library. I had a magnificent amphitheater there, but they also had the temple to the goddess Diana or Artemis. Mm -hmm. Now, this was a female uh, deity, and uh, this temple was one of the wonders of the ancient world. Hmm. It had over 600 columns in it. Wow. Just to give you some idea. Of it was very big. Yes, it was. Mm. So we know about this from Acts 19. So in the temple of Diana or Artemis, uh, this female goddess was worshipped, and the officiants were all women. Oh, wow. So, so it was very much uh, in favor of women in leadership and in worship of a, a female deity. Yes. So, um, and there were all sorts of uh, uh, practices, uh, fertility cults and sexual rites that were connected with these priestesses. Mm. So now Paul and Timothy have established a Christian congregation. And Paul does not want anybody to think that this is an offshoot of the worship of Diana. So he doesn't want women officiating in the church in Ephesus for that reason. Mm. So it's a very specific yeah. reason that he writes like this. A very localized situation. Yes. Yeah. Um, so in verse uh, 11 of First Timothy 2, he said, women should learn quietly and submissively. Notice he he wants them to learn. Mm -hmm. He doesn't want them to be ignorant. Right. And the what's being stated overtly, uh, covertly here, he doesn't come out and say, I don't want you to ape the new Roman woman. Uh, but that's the implication of what he's saying. They're silent in order to learn, then they can speak. They're not to be perpetually silent. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, I believe this insight uh, also goes for what we read in 1 Corinthians 14, 34 to 35. Mm -hmm. These are intriguing passages, and we could say lots more about them, but uh, uh, I, I want to go to 1 Timothy 2.15, which is really interesting. But women will be saved through childbearing, assuming they continue to live in faith, love, holiness, and modesty. Like, uh, what's he talking about? Is he uh, opposed to um, family planning? And uh, do we look down on women who don't have children for whatever reason? It, I mean, it was really important in that culture to have children. Yes. And women who were barren felt very shamed uh, because of that. Yes. Felt like they were less. In fact, was it not a reason for divorce? That, yes. that a man could divorce his wife if she couldn't provide children. So childbearing was important in that culture. But what's he saying here? Well, he's reacting to the new Ro Roman woman mm. who despised childbearing okay. and child-rearing. Yes. So that's be beneath their dignity. Mm. So Paul is coming back to um, the tradition. Mm -hmm. is that it's important to have children, and mm -hmm. children are a blessing from God. Okay. So he's reacting to something that's 
uh, going on in society. It's not uh, giving uh, a, a law for all times. Being aware of what's going on in society is so critical in understanding these passages. Yes, yes, you can't just uh, uh, be ignorant of the backgrounds and hope to come to a correct understanding of a passage. Yeah. Good. So I want to do a quiz on Second Timothy eight. Uh, sorry, Second Tim First Timothy two, verse eight to fifteen. Okay. So in verse eight, he says, "Now I'm going to ask you to vote, and I'm going to vote on this." <laughs> okay. 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 So in every place of worship, Paul says, "I want men to pray with holy hands, lifted up to God, free from anger, controversy." Now. Uh, do you practice lifting up holy hands when you worship? I don't. No, I don't either. So you're just disregarding Paul's advice. Totally. Yes. So what's up with you, Warren? Well, um, <laughs> it's not part of our culture. Yeah. In some settings, I mean, I have been known to raise my hands during a praise time, yeah. but it's not. It's very uh, uh, unusual kind of a situation to do that. Yes. But usually when you pronounce a benediction, you raise your hands, don't you? I, I don't. You don't? I haven't done well, that. Well, it's no. time you repent. I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I think we both have a negative mm -hmm. on verse 8. Now, verse 9 says, and I want uh, women to be modest in their appearance. Well, what do you think, yes or no? I think um, no. No, you don't want women to be modest. I want them to be beautiful. Because <laughs> that's the way God made them. And I don't think we should downplay what God has given them. Well, I'm learning a lot about you. <laughs> um, I would have said a yes, a definite yes of that. Um, they should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair, by wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothes. Am I going to get a yes out of you on that well, one? Well, no, I, I, I agree with, with I, and perhaps I misunderstood. I'm not wanting to suggest that they should be <laughs> immodest. So I would, I would change my vote on the prior one. Okay. Okay. And then uh, verse 10 says, For the women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things they do. Yes. Yeah. I would agree with that. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's try the next one. Uh, why don't you read it? Women should learn quietly and submissively. I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. I do not uh, practice that. I did not practice that in the churches that I led. I was eager for women to be involved and teach, particularly, and not just, in the children's divisions. We would be handicapped if we didn't let the women teach there but even in other, other places, very much. Yeah, so <clears throat> we have women teaching in uh, our seminaries. Yes. And we recognize, we have women read, r writing uh, uh, good exegetical books, mm -hmm. help us to understand the Bible. So we clearly don't subscribe to uh, what he's saying in verse uh, 11 and 12. Well, let's see if we can agree with 13. For God made Adam first, and afterward he made Eve. 
And it was not Adam who was deceived by Satan. The woman was deceived and sin was the result. Now, I want to ask you, what is that all about? It, it seems to be an attempt by Paul to place the responsibility of sin entirely on the women. Yeah. So, um, I, I don't know what to do with that. I, I, I don't like what's happening there. It is there. I can't disregard it. Yeah. But I don't follow his logic at all there. Yeah, and actually, as I as I think of it, if someone is deceived, uh, that's different. I don't think Adam was deceived. Mm. He he ate the fruit, knowing what he was choosing to do, whereas Eve was deceived. Uh, so maybe he's excusing Eve because mm. she was deceived, uh, although he doesn't seem to elaborate on that. Yeah. So the last verse in this passage, women will be saved through childbearing, assuming they continue to live in faith, love, holiness, and modesty. So if you say yes to that, uh, you're sort of implying that single women or women who haven't had children... Um, can't be saved. Can't be saved. Yeah. Uh, so... I would say no one. I, I would agree with you. Yeah. yeah. So it's just interesting that when you look at the whole passage, we disagree with some parts mm -hmm. and agree with other parts. Mm -hmm. um, and legitimately so. So what does that mean um, about us? Are we just picking and choosing what we agree with? Or is it because we are aware that the culture that he was writing in is different than the culture that we're in now. You know, the background's so important. Mm -hmm. um, if you're a nutritionist and you have somebody who's grossly overweight, you would say to the person, you need to eat less. If somebody comes in and is grossly underweight, you would say you need, as a nutritionist, you need to eat more. Mm -hmm. But if... if you need to eat less, you need to eat more. If you don't know the background and the situation in which those statements are made, uh, a glutton could take the statement, you must eat more, mm -hmm. um, as the truth. Uh, and so the background, who's been spoken to and what's the cultural situation and the societal norms at that particular time? Essential. Yeah. Essential. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, there's actually uh, some evidence in the New Testament that women were leading men and had authority over men. Uh, so we're going to look at some of those. Uh, um, Acts 18.26, when Priscilla and Aquila heard Apollos preaching boldly in the synagogue, they took him aside and explained the way of God more accurately. He only knew about John's baptism, according to verse 25 of that chapter. Mm -hmm. So here you have uh, Priscilla and Aquila. They're working together. Yes. And they're teaching Apollos mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. uh, Jesus' baptism. Right. Now, it's interesting that she's mentioned first, but we'll come that, okay. to that later. We've already referenced uh, 1 Corinthians 11.5. But a woman dishonors her head if she prays or prophesies, that means teaches, 
without a covering on her head. We've talked about that, so let's move on. So here are some evidence in Philippians 4, 3 that um, women were teaching men. It says, and I ask you, my true partner, to help those two, these two women, how do you pronounce the first name? Eodia, Eudea, and Synecdoche, for they they worked hard with me in telling others the good news. They worked along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are written in the book of life. So that uh, if you try and track down where Paul says, and I ask you my true partner, uh, we actually think that this was a woman. Really? Yes. Mm. There's strong evidence for it. Yeah. Uh, and then he wants her to help these other two women, mm-hmm. Odia and Syntyche, mm-hmm. uh, which would be uh, normal. Mm-hmm. You know, asking women to help women. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done that often. I'm sure you have too. And, and they, he's saying they they worked hard with me, telling others the good news. So they were involved in in the whole process. Evangelism, yes. as we would call it. Yeah. So in Acts 21, uh, Philip the evangelist had four unmarried daughters who had the gift of prophecy. Right. So yeah. the only way we know that they had the gift of prophecy is because they were prophesying. Yes. Yeah. And, the, and it, it's just referenced. It's not a, an issue of concern. It's just that's what was happening. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And 1 Corinthians fourteen twenty nine. it's speaking about uh, speaking in tongues. Mm-hmm. And it says, let two or three people, and if you look up the antecedent of these people, he's writing to brothers and sisters, okay. not just brothers, mm-hmm. prophesy, and let others evaluate what is said. Mm-hmm. So you, you could... Uh, as in chapter 11, you could have women prophesying mm-hmm. and you could have men and women evaluating the prophecy. What they're saying. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's no hint here that it was only for men. Mm-hmm. So now uh, let's look at some Old Testament uh, women that were really leaders in their own right. And there were some amazing women leaders yes, in like, the Old Testament. Like the first one I can think of is Miriam. Yes. The sister of Moses and Aaron. She belongs to this triumvirate mm-hmm. with her two brothers. And after crossing the sea and the destruction of the Egyptian uh, war uh, chariots, mm-hmm. she sings this amazing song, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted, both horse and driver, as he hurled into the sea. I mean, it's a long song, mm-hmm. and she does it with tambourine and dancing, if mm-hmm. you look at the text. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you have Miriam, the dancing queen of Israel. Yes. You know, she's, yeah. she's really leading out here. Yes. So it's no wonder that, uh, in her humanness, uh, with her popularity and power, she challenges Moses for the leadership role mm-hmm. in Israel. Mm. Um, not because she's a woman, but because she's powerful 
and can actually threaten his position. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, of course, she and Aaron are in this rebellion together, but she's the one who gets leprosy. It seems that she took an active role. Aaron kind of went along with her. Yes. Now, she's definitely the leader. <clears throat> yeah. Now, you, you don't lead a rebellion unless you have a good idea that you can succeed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And she actually believed that she could succeed, yeah. Right. And I want to remind you that in Egypt, we had very powerful female uh, associated with the pharaohs, and of course, Hatshepsut um, was actually female and pretended she was male, but ruled uh, Egypt. Yeah, right. So she has precedence there. Mm -hmm. So then there's Deborah, who is a presidential leader. <laughs> yeah, she's, there's no flies on her. She's the president, she's the pope, <laughs> the spiritual leader, and she's Rambo. She leads the army. She's more than just an advisory person. <laughs> she is, has the authority over the nation. Yeah. And Barak, uh, who is the male leader at the time, mm -hmm. is very much subservient to her. Yes. She, she tells him what to do, and he's too chicken to do it, and says, I'll do it if you come with me. Right. So that's telling you something about her relationship. And then mm -hmm. another woman, Jael, who uh, puts a tent peg through Sisera's head, mm -hmm. is her right hand. So mm -hmm. you, you, that was quite an accomplishment on yes. her part. Yeah, they basically overthrew the enemy. Yes. So... There's no way of getting by that Deborah was a very powerful leader in Israel at this time. In mm -hmm. fact, she was the leader. Yes. And uh, her ethos is best captured by what she says in verse 21 of Judges 5. She says, march on, my soul, be strong. Mm-hmm. And mm -hmm. she did just that. Yeah. So... The next one is Esther. Yeah. We don't really talk about Esther factually. We sort of gloss over it and make it nice. Well, know. it's a nice story to tell our kids. Yes. But the facts of the story are not ones that we want to tell our kids. No. So here's the first Miss World we know about. Yes. You know, they mm -hmm. have this beauty contest. And Esther is no Puritan because this is a, a, con a sexual contest mm -hmm. to decide who will be the next queen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what would you have advised your daughters if they wow. saw the poster? Yeah, that, that, that is a far different than the usual picture that we have. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I would have uh, cautioned them. I certainly wouldn't want one of them to decide to run for that position. <laughs> um. Esther uses all her considerable capabilities to save the exiled Jews in Persia from Haman's genocidal plot to destroy them. And she was in the right place at the right time and did the right thing. Mm -hmm. And with her uncle Mordecai's guidance, she was really good at what she did. Mm -hmm. yeah. She was. So the festival of Purim celebrates this deliverance that Esther brought for the Jews, mm -hmm. and they celebrate it still today. 
So Huldah is a contemporary of Jeremiah, Zephaniah, Nahum, and Habakkuk. So just think about that. You've got four prophets mm -hmm. that wrote books that are included mm -hmm. in our Bible. Mm -hmm. This is important. And Huldah is their contemporary. Apparently, she didn't write any books. Not that we know of. At least the men didn't include them in the Bible. <laughs> if she did. If she did. And so when King Josiah is broken in repentance after the newly discovered Torah is read to him, who does he consult? He could have consulted Jeremiah, Zephaniah, Nahum, or Habakkuk, but instead he consults Huldah. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. And Huldah confirms that what has been read to him is God's word and advises repentance and reform, which he, uh, he does in mm -hmm. Israel. Mm -hmm. It's a good time for Israel. So they're New Testament women also. Oh, okay. There are many of them, aren't there? Yes. Can yeah. you think of some? Well, uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, um, her influence is visible in the lives of, of Jesus and his brother James. Yes, and the reason we know that and can say that is that when she sings her song, the Magnificat, um, she mentions uh, topics that Jesus will mention later and that James will mention mm. in his letter. Mm -hmm. So, uh, for instance, she's concerned about justice for the poor, judgment on oppressors, holiness, and God's faithfulness. And Jesus was very concerned about these mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. aspects. And James starts his letter with the same concerns. In 1 verse 9, he says, Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation. Of course, he's talking about uh, the very same concerns that Mary, the mother of the Messiah, had. Well, and, and Mary, not only did she impact Jesus and James, but the other brothers as well. Even though they gave Jesus a hard time, if you look carefully, um, the brothers of Jesus were in the upper room and when the Holy Spirit was poured out on them, it says the Holy Spirit was poured out on everybody. Mm -hmm. And so Jesus' brothers finally got it. They finally understood what Jesus was all about, and they were part of it too, even though they didn't carry the role that James does. Yeah. Well, we have another person who was profoundly impacted by Mary, and that's Luke. Because Luke is the one who tells us uh, about Mary's story, her conception of the Holy Spirit and mm -hmm. so on. Mm -hmm. So where did he get that story from? Well, he says he did research mm -hmm. before he wrote the book. So he probably tried to talk to as many first-hand witnesses. He probably interviewed Mary. Mm. I hope he did. I hope he got the story directly from Mary, mm -hmm. but he may have gotten it from somebody else. So now we come to the saga of Junia. What's the story behind Junia? <laughs> well, here's where we introduced to her. Mm -hmm. In Romans 16, 7, uh, greet Andriosis. Andronicus. Andronicus, sorry. 
and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. So um, you, we're using the New International Version mm -hmm. because Junia um, gets a gender change every now and then. And really? She, and she becomes Junius. She was transgender? <laughs> <laughs> well, it almost seems like it. Interesting. It's so the translators it. changed the way that the name to be a male name. Yes. Wow. And the reason they did that was because the text seems to indicate that this person was an apostle. Yeah. And they don't want a female being an apostle. Because that would mess with their male superiority. Yep. Oh, wow. Okay, so now uh, building a case for junior, be, uh, junior being female, mm -hmm. you have uh, St. Christum writing, and he lived between 340 and 407 AD. Mm -hmm. So this is the 4th century. Right. He writes this. Indeed, how great the wisdom of this woman, he's talking about Junia, Straight up. must have been that she was even deemed worthy of the title of apostle. Mm. So he recognized that here was a woman that was given the title of an apostle. Yes. So now all early uh, translations listed Junia as a woman. And the first exception that we come to is Martin Luther's German New Testament, which was published in 1522. So from 400 to 1500, they all saw her as a woman. Yes. Okay. So Luther, uh, he doesn't like having a female apostle, and he's a man of strong convictions and forthright uh, writing, mm -hmm. and so he makes the change um, in the German, uh, she is junius. She has now become male. So that's the male way of saying the name. Yes. And okay. The, actually, in the Greek, uh, junior and junius is just a matter of emphasis on which syllable. Hmm. So it's very easy to make the change. Mm -hmm. Luther's translation was very influential. But it... it the. Influence didn't appear uh, immediately. Mm -hmm. So um, we've got an Eberhard Nestle. He's a, a German scholar, and he pieces together. See, we have no originals of the Greek New Testament. We have manuscripts, uh, various manuscripts, and so he tried to uh, find or derive the most accurate Greek uh, record of the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he came up with this composite Greek New Testament. Uh, it was given his name. And that happened, uh, well, I'm not sure when it happened, but he lived from 1851 to 1913. So around about 1900. Right. Okay. Yeah. So he produces this composite. And in his composite Greek New Testament, uh, Junior is female. Oh, so he goes back to the female yes. Uh, gender. Yes. Wow. So, um, 
there's a, his son carries on the work and a fellow called Kurt Aland um, takes over after Nestle and his son have done their bit. So today you have a, a Nestle, Aland uh, composite Greek New Testament. It's mm -hmm. widely used. Okay. But in 1927, guess what? They junior switch it, switch it back. Genius. Becomes master. So a hundred years ago, they switched it back. Yeah. Really? Now there is a footnote uh -huh. that it could be junior. But uh, I'm told that translators don't pay much attention to the footnotes. Mm. So we also have the United Bible Society's composite Greek New Testament, which pretty much follows Nestle and the land. Mm -hmm. But it also has... Uh, a male hmm. uh, in this passage. Hmm. Hmm. So it's quite a saga, isn't it? It is. It is. It's switched back and forth, and 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 only a hundred years ago it, they went back to the male gender once again. 1946, the Revised Standard Version is published mm -hmm. and uh, replaces Junior with Junius again. So if you look in translations today, uh, some have junior and some have juniors. What's interesting is whenever you have juniors used, the male name, they usually give a footnote okay. indicating that this could be junior. Mm. 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 Now some translations uh, remove to solve the problem Andronicus and Julia as apostles and have them well thought of by the apostles. Oh, so okay. They're no longer apostles. They're just well thought of by the apostles. Oh. And that then removes the problem okay. of having a female in there. So this is a good example of politics in the Bible. Yes, very much. And we're naive to think that politics doesn't play mm -hmm. a part. So... Um, Let's talk about Priscilla. She's also, uh, together with her husband Aquila, uh, is influential in the New Testament. They were tent makers with Paul. And uh, it's interesting that Priscilla is always listed before Aquila. Right. When I officiated weddings, I like to ask the couple, how would you like me to introduce you to the congregation. Mm -hmm. And then when they've decided on Mr. and Mrs., I ask, what about Mrs. and Mr.? <laughs> 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 because I think it, it does indicate something um, when you I introduce. Uh, usually we say, this is Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Or if we're introducing them separately, we'll start with, this is Jane Smith. And this is Joe Smith. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's uh, significant that she's listed first. And we talked about her. Uh, they are the couple that explained the gospel of the baptism of Jesus to Apollos. And she's a co-worker with Paul and Aquila. So she's like on the same footing. Yes, yeah. she's not uh, second class. Mm -hmm. So why don't you talk about Phoebe? 
So in uh, Romans 16, the first two verses, Paul says this. He says, I commend to you our sister, our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Centria. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need of you. For she has been a benefactor of many people, including me. Some scholars believe Phoebe carried Paul's letter to Rome and read it there and answered any questions the congregation had of her. So, yeah, she, she was not only trusted with the letter to deliver it, but she interpreted it for them. Mm -hmm. She taught them. She, she helped it make sense to them. That is very, I mean, for Paul to trust a woman to do that back then was revolutionary. And, and yet he, it's, it's very likely, I mean, obviously he couldn't just send it in an email uh, to Rome. It had to be delivered. And so he entrusted her with that responsibility. And uh, so it's a very important responsibility for sure. Yes, and she's mentioned as a benefactor. Mm -hmm. Now, we usually think of uh, a benefactor, we think of a will and leaving money. Mm -hmm. But she's a live benefactor, Yes, which includes much more than money. Yeah. Yeah. So another interesting point is that Phoebe uh, is not a deaconess, but a deacon. Oh, interesting. I hadn't noticed that before. Yeah, she's referred to as a deacon. As a deacon. Yes. Hmm. So um, she's a leader as found in 1 Timothy 3, 8 to 12. In the same way, deacons must be well respected and have integrity. They must not be heavy drinkers or dishonest with money. They must be committed to the mystery of the faith, now revealed and must live with clear conscience. Before they are appointed as deacons, let them be closely examined. If they pass the test, then let them serve as deacons. Mm -hmm. So we can't leave out the next two verses. Okay. Just comment on them. Verse 11 and 12 says, In the same way, their wives must be respected and must not slander others. They must exercise self-control and be faithful in everything they do. A deacon must be faithful to his wife, and he must manage his children and household well. So uh, people who are strong on male leadership uh, like to use this and say, well, you see, uh, you can qualify as a deacon and an elder if you have a wife. Mm -hmm. um, but this is writing to a particular situation again. And, right. And um, here you've got somebody... If we replaced uh, one spouse, uh, it would work for us today rather than one wife or one yes, husband. Yes, right, yeah. yeah. By using it, it, as you suggested, would disqualify Jesus as being able to be a deacon because he was not married. Yes, yes, would exclude yeah. single people, put you in a bit of a dilemma. Yes. Okay, we're almost done. The okay. third passage, which is used to silence women, is found very early in the Bible. It's found in Genesis 3, verse 16. 
Okay. But before we read Genesis 3, verse 16, I want to read uh, 4, verse 7, and just a section out of it, because it's a parallel passage. And this is what 4, verse 7 uh, says. It, referring to sin, desires to have you. God's talking to Cain. Yes. Sin desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Hmm. Now, the statement in 3.16 in Hebrew phraseology is almost identical. Hmm. When Jesus, when God speaks to Eve, he says, your desire, remember, sin's desire is for you. Your mm -hmm. desire will be for your husband, mm -hmm. and he will rule over you, or he he will try to master you, like Cain was to master sin. Mm. Mm -hmm. So if you, if you see that these phrases are almost identical, they help to interpret each other. So putting the two together, uh, I can say this. Sin wants to control you, Cain, but you must push back. Mm -hmm. Um Eve wants to control you, Adam, but you must push back. Hmm. Hmm. Very different than that Adam is being told he has to control Eve. Yes. Or dominate her. Yes. He just needs to push back against Eve's natural inclination to, to control him. Yes. Interesting. So rather than... Uh, uh, a text to support the submission of women to men. Mm -hmm. This is a passage which indicates that because of sin, there's going to be this clash of wills mm -hmm. in uh, male-female relationships. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. I'd never seen that before. You brought that out. Okay. We're at Pentecost. Okay. A great formative experience mm -hmm. of the early church. Mm -hmm. How many people were converted at Pentecost? 3,000 in yeah. one day. And how many people um, were involved with the worship of the golden calf and were killed? Oh, I'm guessing 3,000. Yes. Wow. The two are linked. Yes. This is the new Israel okay. that's happening here being generated by the Spirit. Mm. Hmm. So the uh, Pentecost is a parallel to what happened at Mount Sinai. Okay. So in the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit upon... All people. All people. Mm. Not some of them. Mm -hmm. In case you didn't get it, your sons and... Daughters. Will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. That's very inclusive. Very inclusive. Mm -hmm. And this is uh, the new symphony for believers to hear. Mm -hmm. um, something dramatic is happening here. It's an announcement that race age and gender divisions are over. Believers need to sing the song of Pentecost, the song of the kingdom of heaven. And 
as we've been looking at this, it, it comes to my mind that what does this really say about God and his character? And to realize that with God, there are no divisions of race, no divisions of age, um, no divisions of gender. They're all part of the kingdom of this world. Those aspects are part of the kingdom of this world, but in his mind, uh, those divisions don't exist in the kingdom of heaven. They certainly don't. Yeah. Maybe this is what Jesus meant uh, when he said, you do err, uh, because in the kingdom of heaven there's no marriage and giving in marriage. Possibly he was referring to this uh, new kingdom where all divisions are done away with. Well, now you've raised an issue that we probably should look at in another podcast. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much. This has been very uh, thought-provoking. And uh, if, uh, if you'd like to follow the slides that we have been looking at that uh, articulate these ideas, they can be found on the website, which will be uh, in the uh, notes for this episode. Thank you, Warren. Good right. to talk with you. Thank you, Ian. Take care. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you would like to contact us, you can at Rediscovering God on Facebook or Instagram, or send us an email to rediscoveringgod20 at gmail.com. We are encouraged to hear how this picture of God is making a difference for you. And if you're listening to us on Spotify or Apple, you can leave a review or rate the podcast so that others will become more aware of a God that is love as revealed by Jesus Christ. Thank you.